we can influence the behavior of the CCP regime in part by demonstrating the ineffectiveness of the tactics that it's pursuing. And that has to be the first order of business. This is Asia Insight, Asia policy in a pod. From the National Bureau of Asian Research in Washington, D.C., this is Dan Um. Asia Insight is a podcast series from NBR. We interview top Asia experts to discuss key issues affecting the Indo-Pacific region, particularly with a view to inform U.S. policy and businesses. This is the fifth and last episode that we're releasing from the Asia Policy Assembly, a major policy conference organized by NBR and the National Defense University. This episode features a discussion about U.S.-China strategic competition. Dr. Laura Juner moderates this session with Dr. Rich Ellings and Dr. Aaron Friedberg. Let me briefly introduce our participants. Dr. Laura Juner is the Director of Research and Strategic Support at the National Defense University. She previously served as the Director for the Center for Strategic Research. She also served as the Principal Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness. Dr. Rich Ellings is President Emeritus of NBR. He's also an affiliate professor of international studies at the University of Washington School of International Studies. Before NBR, Rich was responsible for the legislation on defense and foreign policy issues for Senator Slade Gorton. Dr. Aaron Friedberg is a professor of politics and international affairs at Princeton University. He is also the co-director of the Woodrow Wilson School's Center for International Studies. Aaron previously served as deputy assistant for National Security Affairs in the Office of the Vice President. We're thrilled to have such an experienced group discuss U.S.-China strategic rivalry. In this discussion, Rich and Aaron will assess the state of that rivalry, underscore the need to develop a more effective approach to China in the Indo-Pacific region, and offer some thoughts on the best ways for the United States to move ahead with China. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Asia Insight. Welcome to the next event on the agenda, and I'd like to thank and welcome Professor Ann Freeberg from Princeton and also longtime partner with NBR, and Dr. Richard Ellis, um, who needs no introduction to most of you in the room. So I'd like to begin with a very basic question. I'm a fan with knowing what right looks like. What should U.S.'s strategy or what should US, the U.S.'s objective with respect to China be? Open question to both of you. Being a simple-minded person, I would start off with trying to understand the nature of the threat and challenge, and then the nature of the kind of international system in which the challenge exists. And I think just to, Aaron probably is not going to disagree here too much on this, but we, you know, we have, in a sense, an international system that is now much more, where power is much more dispersed than during the Cold War, uh, or especially immediately after the Cold War. So there is an ambiguous, and it's a fast-changing balance of power, so we have a lot of ambiguity in the international system, which means everybody gets nervous, and it's not clear what opportunities are seen by whom. So you've got a, a very interesting and fluid and potentially volatile international system. And at the same time, in it, the principal new actor, China, rise of China, presents a series of challenges because of its authoritarian structure, its history, its extreme nationalism, its success, its ambition, and so on. And then there are a bunch of other actors, especially Russia, also Japan, and others who matter. So trying to understand this milieu is kind of the first, uh, the first step. Well, you've asked what I think is really the key question, right. because you can't have a strategy that deserves the title without being clear about what the objective is. And I think we're actually at a stage now in this discussion where people talk about consensus, the new consensus on China. And I think that's premature. I think we have a consensus on the existence of a problem and a challenge, but we're far from a consensus on the strategy, prescription for, for the strategy. I believe that we've had a reasonably coherent strategy going back, let's say, to the end of the Cold War, it probably extends a little bit further back. And it's been a two-pronged approach. We've sought to engage with China across all domains, in particular in the economic domain, but we've also 
certainly since the mid-1990s, taken steps to maintain a favorable balance of power in the Asia-Pacific region, maintaining our forces, working with our allies, developing partnerships with other countries, and so on. And it seems to me the objective of that strategy was to maintain stability, to deter aggression or attempts at coercion, while we waited for engagement to kind of work its magic on China. And we were hoping that this process would encourage them to become what in the Bush administration we referred to as a responsible stakeholder in the existing international system, and also that over time engagement, particularly economic engagement, would set in motion or accelerate forces within China that would lead to the liberalization of its economic system and ultimately the liberalization of its political system. And I think where we are now is at a point where most people will acknowledge that that strategy has not succeeded in achieving its objectives. And so we're, we're kind of back to square one, at least in my view. And I think for the near term, our objectives are probably going to be largely defensive, that in light of the increasing assertiveness or aggression of the current CCP regime, we're going to have to do more not only to defend our friends and allies and our access to the region and the freedom of navigation through the global commons and, and, and so on, so the sort of outer perimeter of our position in the world, but also defending our economy and our society from penetration and exploitation. So in the near term, our objectives are defensive. But in the longer run, I think there is a fundamental question about whether we can hope to have a stable, cooperative relationship with a China that is ruled as China is today by a one-party authoritarian regime. My view is that the answer to that question is no, and that in the long run, we have to, Senator Gardner quoted George Kennan, Kennan also said at the end of his long telegram, X article, that the long-term objective of U.S. strategy had to be to await the gradual mellowing or eventual breakup of Soviet power. And I would substitute CCP power. But I think in the long run, that is, has to be our objective. You know, we really have a twin, kind of two sets of goals simultaneously. One of them simply refers to the basis of power, paying attention to our own economic power the economic power of like-minded states, so balancing China in particular, and Russia as well, there have to be a group of states, unavoidably led by the United States, who have to pay attention to their sheer capabilities. So part of the competition is a competition between capabilities. The other part of the competition is engagement, trying to be influential, and so on, diplomatic, ideological, military, and so on. But we have to understand that at this juncture, there are reasons we have to pay attention to the sheer capacity of our military forces, economic might, forming relationships around China, which together forge a, ba a better balance than than would otherwise be the case. So they're kind of twin goals with regard to policy. So in this context, do you think China can be influenced? I mean, we've seen they've sort of opened up their markets. What type of influence might they be susceptible to? Well, I think to the extent that they've reformed and opened, as Deng Xiaoping said they would, going back to the late 1970s, they've done so largely on their own terms and for their own reason. The CCP leadership, I think particularly after Tiananmen in 1989, was determined both to proceed with economic reform and opening within certain parameters, and also to forestall any possibility of meaningful political reform. I don't think that that was always accurately perceived in the West, in the United States. There was an expectation that this was a little bit of a hiccup, perhaps, but that inevitably China would move down a path that would lead us closer and closer together in terms of the composition and character of our domestic political systems. So yes, they've reformed and they've changed, but on their own terms and for their own reasons, and always with the eye to maintaining the monopoly on domestic political power. So it wasn't power so much they were Party. influenced, it was this was their own pursuit of... Yes, I wouldn't say there was no influence. I think at this point, the hope that we can kind of encourage the current Chinese leadership to pursue policies more in keeping with those that we would prefer by offering inducements, by being nice essentially is an, an empty one. I do think we can influence the behavior of the CCP regime 
in part by demonstrating the ineffectiveness of the tactics that it's pursuing. And that has to be the first order of business, to prevent them from succeeding in achieving some of the objectives that they're pursuing at this point, as in the hopes that in the longer run that might deflect them. Yeah, I would add to that. There are probably some areas, not unlike we found during the Cold War, where there can be strategic cooperation. In the Cold War, we even managed to put together, at the very height of the Cold War, in the immediate aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Test Ban Treaty. It was in the U.S., U, at the time, this is how it started, U.S., U.K.'s, and America's interest to stop atmospheric tests, prevent underwater tests, and, and so on. But that's very limited. That was a global interest that they all shared from the danger of fallout. In the case to understand, I think, the limits to strategic cooperation at this point, you have to understand the existential threat that democracies, and especially the American democracy, because we're the powerful one, pose to China. These are incompatible. Our system and set of values are incompatible with theirs. So regardless of what we do, there's going to be an intense existential competition as long as that regime remains as it is. So therefore, there's going to be tremendous insecurity on their part, tremendous sensitivity. So that translates to competition, especially given their ambitions and so on, uh, around the world. So the success of a government to achieve its strategic objectives is correlated with its ability to marshal the country's resources in pursuit of those objectives. Can you talk a little bit about U.S. strategy in pursuit of objectives with China and how China marshals its resources? Well, first on China, clearly because it's not a democratic system, it's an autocratic or authoritarian regime where the party state ultimately has all power, it's an easier proposition to demand that various actors in society accord with the wishes of the regime to mobilize resources, to extract resources for strategic purposes. So at least in the near to medium term, that's an advantage. There are disadvantages that that kind of centralized regime has, and we've seen those in competition with centralized regimes in the past. On our side, historically, the United States has done well at mobilizing resources for strategic competition only after it's experienced some kind of setback or crisis. And that's because our system is not designed for purposes of mass mobilization. We don't have a strong state. We have a relatively weak one. We have divided government. We have all kinds of ways in which different interest groups can influence policy and so on. And for the most part, in peacetime, in normal peacetime, that's the way we proceed. Unfortunately, it has usually taken some kind of setback to galvanize our system, to achieve a true consensus about the existence of a threat. And when that happens, our system is designed actually to allow a great deal of mobilization and focus once the Congress and the executive and the judiciary and press and public opinion come into greater alignment, it's possible to do a lot. Short of that, there are real limitations on how effectively we can compete. And I think the question going forward as we think about competition with China is how we can get closer to the level of preparedness and competition that I think we're going to need to achieve for stalling a crisis, we hope. So in the absence of some kind of shock, I think that's where we are. And that's going to require political leadership. That's the only way to do that. That's right. You know, if you compare this, uh, just to underscore Aaron's point, if you compare this era with the 1930s, a number of similarities, still economic insecurity, all kinds of engagement with authoritarian systems and ambivalence about them in spite of the gathering terrible news coming out of Europe and Asia, tremendous ambivalence in the United States about the whole business and about our role in the world and so on, things that we hear in it today so much of. And, and it took this horrible set of shocks to get us going. And in that slower-paced world, we had the time. We also had an industrial sector that dominated the world. Today, our industrial sector is outsized by China's by one and a half to, to twice in, in terms of comparative, just sheer size. And arguably, China's economy in many ways is more vertically integrated than ours, much like ours was in the 1930s, in fact. So on the one hand, 
you can see that we're, we haven't reached sufficient consensus and sense of alarm to do a whole bunch. At the same time, we may not have the same capacity, which will give us the will, in fact, to engage like we did in 1941. So it's our hope, in fact, in events like this and all the work we're doing, that the American public and policymakers can understand just the gravity of the challenges we face and begin earlier on and not have to face the huge crisis because that crisis may come too late. We may not have the chance to respond. You'd rather forestall the events as they unfolded in the mid-20th century. Yeah, clearly when the, when the U.S. public and lawmakers become motivated, the U.S. can mobilize very well, but we haven't reached that public and political consensus yet. That, I, I believe that's the case, although it is striking how much attitudes have changed, yeah. particularly in this city on both sides of the aisle, Republicans and Democrats. I don't think, I think there are any number of Democratic senators who would have given a very similar set of remarks this morning. And that would not have been true five or 10 years ago. Yeah. So there's, there's been a lot of, in my view, progress towards a better understanding, at least of the existence of this challenge. So let me ask you um, maybe an unfair question. Over the next five years, what would you like to see in terms of a change in this country to, to put us in a better standing? Well, well that, what, that could what, be a what, long list. What, uh, <laughs> what, what would allay some of your fears and concerns okay. and start mitigating risks? Rich, I'm going to let you take that first, since you're the, you're the senior statesman. So, we're, if, for example, there is a national effort to try to support the development of AI. Is that a step in the right direction? Okay, well, let me uh, take a stab at it, because this is the most comprehensive challenge America has faced since probably the early uh, 19th century when we were sacked and burned here by the preeminent world power at the time, Great Britain. But, but this is truly a remarkable set of challenges, and given the complexity of international affairs, it's comprehensive. So you can't separate out economic, diplomatic, military, and so on. It's going to take an absolutely comprehensive set of uh, integrated strategies. And that means, for example, on the economic front, and, I, and Senator Gardner began to touch on this, that means trying to understand how we bolster and boost our economic might together with our allies and friends, which will give them greater heart and belief that they should be in our coalition, but to boost our capacity, our economic growth, and so on. Now, that means it's going to be take positive steps in a strategy. It means negative steps. It means because of the danger of supply chains going into China, it means having to disentangle them, to better secure them, to look for alternative sources of supply. So there's an entire economic dimension of this. While you want to sustain a vigorous market system, which is going to outdo them, very complicated. So at the same time, you're, you're having to keep your powder dry. And that doesn't mean just sustaining, you know, increasing our O&M budget. Right. It means making major innovations and supplying major research, R&D, as well as new kinds of programs relevant to the kinds of big power threats we're facing. And then diplomatically, in my view, maybe we can get there, it means handling those powers that most want us to fail, mm -hmm. handling them in a very adroit, strategic way that encourages them not to work together, encourages the, at least one of them maybe to begin to understand its interests are mostly inciting with us. Disentangling, I'm gonna pull the thread on the, the thought of disentangling US and Chinese economies and reversing our economic interdependence. That's a big thought, that's a huge thought. Is that, is that really necessary and to what extent? If I could just take a stab at the previous question yeah, just for yeah. a second, because I agree with, with everything that Rich has said. I think, among other things, it's likely that we're going to have to sustain substantial increases in defense spending over a long period of time. So we've, under the current administration, there's been a, an increase, but it's going to be very difficult to sustain it unless and until we have some kind of broad consensus about our fiscal policies, taxation, spending, entitlement spending. I mean, this is 
big. People talk about all of society and so on. Well, we have to come to some kind of resolution of those difficulties if we're going to be able to mobilize the necessary resources to engage in a long-term competition with a country like China with a, with a large and still quite fast-growing economy. So that's, that's one thing. Rich mentioned the defensive measures that we have to take because of vulnerabilities that are created by the entanglement of our economies, and that's a big topic that we can come to in a minute. On Just on the innovation front, there are both defensive measures we have to make, that we have to take to protect intellectual property, to reduce the extent to which Chinese entities have been able to penetrate and extract intellectual property from American and other Western companies. This is a process that's now in seriously in gear. But I think most people would also agree there are things we have to do domestically in terms of our own policies in order to sustain the flexibility and the innovative qualities of our of our economy, including, and this is this is the sort of eat your spinach list, you know, increased federal spending on basic scientific research and research and development, which has dropped off, improvements in K through 12 education, including in, in science and, and math, immigration policies that continue to attract people of ability to want to come to this country and, and become citizens and live and work here. So there's an array of things that we that we need to do. I think in our both in the ways that our political leaders talk about this challenge domestically and in the way we talk about it internationally, there has to be a greater emphasis than I think there has been to this point on this issue of values. And the point being that we have a system based on what we consider to be universal values, not American values, but universal values that many others share our belief in the importance of those values, political liberty, religious freedom, and so on, and that we have to defend those. That, I think, is ultimately what is necessary to mobilize our people. And I think it's also essential to holding together a coalition to oppose a regime that denies the existence of those universal values and seeks to the extent that it can to to weaken them. So there are many things that, that we need to do. Disentangling, should we talk about that? That's, that's our <laughs> Why favorite not? topic. Yes, it's a huge, I mean, I'm an economist by training, right? So that's a huge thought. I don't even know if it's possible. Do you right. want to talk about that a little bit? Sure, yeah, let me take a first stab at it. I've been dealing more or less in many ways with this issue since graduate school. In the 1970s, there was a lot of concern about the hollowing out of the United States economy. And at the same time, we were in strategic competition with the Soviet Union. And and so there were export controls and so on. We had CFIUS, we had investment controls, but they were comparatively minor of minor importance given the limited capacities of the Soviet Union. But export controls were a big deal and failures in them, such as in the early 1980s, the Toshiba Kongsberg example and so on, they really did make the headlines. Well, today, given the international economy, the complexity and the interdependence, the idea that we're going to rely solely on export controls, CFIUS and, and bureaucratic means of attempting to keep intellectual property from illicitly getting to China, wow, that is a big, tall order. It's incomprehensible, in fact, to me, given the failures in a much simpler era, that in this era we could even, by bureaucratic means alone, have any chance of stemming this. And yet, it's clear we have to do enormous things. Our supply chains are beyond vulnerable. To sustain a military effort, say it was kept even at a moderate level in Asia, with China clamping down would be unimaginable. So what do you do? We can do a combination of things, and it's interesting. One of the things that we do at MBR and I do personally is serve to direct this something called the IP Commission, the Commission on the Theft of American Intellectual Property. It's been highly effective in publicizing the degree of problem that we have in, in intellectual property theft and, and uh, transfer. So. We're looking for innovative ways in dealing with this complex world. One of the ways would be to try to introduce market mechanisms into this, a scoring kind of mechanism, which like a FICO score, all economic entities in the world would hold a score based on how they have behaved in terms of protecting intellectual property and so on. And thus, that kind of score would incentivize actors worldwide to work more with this one versus that one and so on and and maybe encourage change. But at the same time, boy, what a difficult thing to do. One last comment, and that is on tariffs. 
there is nothing like a sledgehammer to get people's attention. And, and, and the sledgehammer is actually way too precise an instrument for an analogy. <laughs> this is, you know, I always like to say things close only counts in horseshoes and atom bombs. This is kind of like an atom bomb. Lots of stuff going on and, and repercussions all over the place. But I'll have to say this. One thing about the tariffs is that they have absolutely riveted everybody's attention on the degree to which China's a problem. And it's primarily China. China accounts for between 80 and 90 percent of IP theft worldwide. That alone, and then you know, underlying that, this tremendous strategic competition. And pretty soon, investors, business people begin to realize, you know, this is a tough long-term bet. We better diversify uh, our risk. And so I would argue that a little blunt instrument has been useful. And, and so we're going to see in a process, perhaps already begun now, the redirecting of supply chains and, and a kind of reorientation in the global economy. Well, Rich has done a little plugging for NBR, and I'll do a little bit more. First, I think the IP Commission has been extremely important. It's really one of the first efforts to call attention to the extent of Chinese theft of intellectual property, going back, what, to 2013, 2012? That's right, yeah. So, uh, it's, and it's now recognized, I think, as having been a path-breaking effort and continues. Another somewhat more modest effort is underway that I'm currently co-chairing with Congressman Charles Bustani, re-examining the economic dimension of U.S. strategy towards China. And we issued a first report in January, and we have a second one that's going to come out uh, early in the fall. So, and of course, it's, it's a huge problem, an ongoing conversation and debate. One of the challenges of doing a report on this topic over the last 18 months has been that the, it keeps moving and keeps changing, and policy keeps changing from day to day. So it's not been easy to stay ahead of that. So just a, a couple of comments on it. It really goes back to the point I was making earlier about the assumptions that underlay our policy towards China going back to the early 1990s, this idea of incorporating China into the global system and in particular into the international economy in the expectation that that would induce change over time, economic and political. And what that allowed was the development of an extraordinary degree of interconnectedness because it, that coincided with this larger trend towards globalization and the distribution of production networks and freer flows of information and investment and so on. And that was something that was recognized as being important by American policymakers. It was also something that was seen in the long run to be advantageous to the United States, both in economic and strategic terms, because it would contribute to this process that would produce liberalization in China and alleviate any strategic concern we might have. So we tried to treat China as a normal trading partner and opened ourselves up in the process mm -hmm. to some forms of interconnectedness, which we now recognize as carrying significant risk. There's a tendency, I think, on the part of some of my economist friends, no offense to economists, to say, <laughs> well, this is, this is sort of, this was an act of God, and it's just a natural <laughs> uh, result of the working out of economic forces. But that's not really true. It's the result of markets and structures that were set in place by strategic decisions made both in the United States and in China in the early part of the, the 1990s. And it can change if those strategic calculations change. And that, I think, is what's starting to happen now. This is not to say that it's going to be easy to, to achieve a degree of separation or disentanglement, which we would regard as, I think, necessary for our own security, or that it's going to be cheap to do that. I think it's going to be costly in certain respects to do that. We're just at the beginning of thinking about what the objectives of that process ought to be. But I do think there's a recognition that there are risks that we probably should not be running if we allow, for example, key components of our IT infrastructure or key components of weapons and other defense-related systems to be manufactured in facilities that are owned or controlled by Chinese entities, all of which I think we now recognize are ultimately controlled by the CCP. There were cost advantages to allowing much of this to, to, to happen, but that discounted the strategic risk, or something which I think is in certain respects clearer and where the discussion has proceeded further, the idea that we 
probably shouldn't and won't run the risks associated with allowing Chinese entities to build or control significant portions of our critical infrastructure. We were well down the road of allowing that to happen before people started to recognize what the dangers were. Technology transfer, extraction, the idea that we really didn't mind and shouldn't be worried if Chinese entities, again, with perhaps by one step removed or not even one step removed, links to the party state, investing in American companies that were developing technologies that are potentially of strategic importance, economic but also military. That too is a process that had advanced quite a long way before people started to recognize that it was undesirable. So we're at the early stages of this. It's going to be messy. It's going to be costly. But I think it's necessary. So based on your answer, one would think that maybe we would prioritize sort of high-tech products. But given the Internet of Things and how there's so many dual-use products out there, that might be harder said than done. It undoubtedly would be harder to do than to say. On the other hand, that's the direction in which things are already moving. And it's worth noting, I think, that if there is going to be a process of disentanglement or disengagement, which I think to some degree there is, it's really a process that was set in motion by the Chinese, not by us. So China has been imposing restrictions on investment in certain sectors of its economy. They've been trying to pull back and increase their own self-reliance in the development and production of components that go into their systems. So they're well down this road already, although they're not far enough down it that they are independent of, of us. Some people have described a a possible new equilibrium in which we engaged in trade in things that were not of any obvious strategic relevance. So Dan Rosen, a friend of mine, says, well, it's it's socks and soybeans. We can buy all the socks we want from China or other consumer products, and we'll sell them all the soybeans they want, but we're not going to be doing the same kind of production, distributed production, and trade in high-tech sectors. Again, that's easier to say than to figure out how, how you're going to do it or to imagine the political circumstances that would allow that to go forward. The question in my mind is whether there's an equilibrium point between the kind of status quo, which is our being essentially open and China being in certain respects increasingly closed, and a world in which we're both closed off, a real sort of Cold War separation between our economies in every respect. What's the point between those two extremes that would be desirable for us from the point of view of our strategic and economic interests. Because I think the status quo has been very desirable to the Chinese regime, and they would like to keep it that way if they could. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah, just uh, Aaron and Charles have really done a deep, deep dive looking at the issue comprehensively and, and had really been interviewing across the board so many premier people, different segments of this. Let me just underscore one, one really important point for everyone to understand. The Chinese, in spite of, of popular understanding, have had a remarkably consistent set of industrial policies through all these various leaders. And there's so much attention pointed to Xi Jinping. But in fact, he's just done a more sophisticated and better job than some of his predecessors, and in some ways, not as good a job. The effort to steal American secrets commenced the day of Sino-U.S. rapprochement in the face of the Soviet threat. And by the end of the 1970s, they had already successfully, by being invited into our labs, talking to our physicists, our military people, and so on, by the end of the 70s, they had stole the technology to produce enhanced radiation weapons, neutron bomb. They had our most advanced nuclear secrets by 1979. And by 1978-9, Deng Xiaoping's reforms began, and those four categories of reforms, including military modernization, by the way, those, those reforms were aimed at taking that lesson from the 70s and expanding it across the board economically through their students coming here, through strategic trade, taking on production and so on and integrating themselves, not for the purpose of some joyous market-driven kumbaya in which we all rise our boats together, but no, for the strategic purposes of the party state, which was to enhance its own power 
the country's power and, as Xi Jinping likes to call it now, achieve the China dream, which is no less than the reestablishment of the central kingdom as the major power in the world and a system of international relations based on the Chinese model, which I think we need to look at, probably as trying to anticipate, a hybrid of a kind of Leninist, international Leninist model led by China and its historic suzerain role. We're talking about a hierarchy of states, not a global market-driven kumbaya. I just want to highlight something that Rich said about, which I think is very important, about the consistency over a long period of time, in, I believe, yeah. in Chinese policy or CCP policy <clears throat> and objectives. There's been some tendency in the last several years for people to blame everything on Xi Jinping and say if, if only he hadn't come along and sort of yanked the wheel sharply in the wrong direction, everything would be proceeding swimmingly. I think that's just fundamentally wrong. It's wrong on the facts, but it also creates a misleading impression, I think, which is if only we can outweigh this guy right. and someone else will come along, someone nicer right. will come along, who will pursue different policies, everything will be okay. That's not going to happen. Xi Jinping, uh, as, as Rich says, has been more aggressive, more open in certain respects in stating China's objectives, pushed harder along various axes where his predecessors were always already pushing. I think he's done that in part because of a, what may turn out to be, in retrospect, an excessive confidence in the relative power of China and the United States and a belief that the moment had come when it was possible for China to move ahead very rapidly. I think history may judge that this was premature and that actually many of the things that uh, have happened in the last several years, not only in this country but in other parts of the world, including Europe, where people have begun to become more suspicious and concerned about Chinese activity or a direct result of that acceleration. But it's an acceleration down a path that China had been following for a long time. So let's talk about another one of China's big initiatives, the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, they've invested hundreds of billions of dollars globally. Is this a good bet for China? What are they after? Well, in fact, you know, a lot of the money hasn't been invested yet, but as, uh, as someone familiar, especially on this stage, but around the room, Nadej Roland has pointed out, Belt and Road is really Chinese foreign policy. It is, it's bringing together economic, strategic, diplomatic, all the tools for the extension of Chinese influence, and much of it with a long-term view, which is just fascinating. Can you make a particular region increasingly integrated through its infrastructure and its economy dependent upon its relationship with China? And so money-wise, and as I said, infrastructure, trade relations, security relations, and so it, and it's global. I'm fascinated that it never makes the papers, but a couple of years ago, <clears throat> It was announced a major Chinese oil and gas company proposed to build the natural, the big new natural gas pipeline in Alaska. It's not that Belt and Road, and as you probably know, Belt means land and Road means water, but in any case, it's not that it just goes through Eurasia. It's not that it just goes through Southeast Asia. No, it's a global, it's a global effort, and how successful might a part of it be were it to complicate the calculations of the congressional delegation of Alaska if $50 billion were coming in or 60 or more to build a gas pipeline to a terminal that would then export LNG to China. So it's a global phenomenon and, uh, and we have to understand that it is really a part of it, a comprehensive strategy. As Aaron said, there are elements even within China that surfaced some months ago in which a lot of this stuff, the expense of it, the world's negative reaction to it, a lot of this stuff is coming now apparent in, in domestic Chinese affairs are, have, has in fact Xi Jinping overstepped his, uh, or overplayed his hand and too early. Did not attend enough to biding his time in, in Deng Xiaoping's terminology. So, but this is a global phenomenon. It's not just regional. It is foreign policy. It is a, a comprehensive strategic effort. It's not just a Marshall Plan. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's much bigger than that with much longer term 
and I would argue insidious implications because you have the permanent insertion of Chinese interests wherever Belt and Road goes. Well, a little more plugging for NBR work. Rich mentioned the Deja's book, which I strongly recommend, China's Eurasian Century, which was ahead of the curve. The, the roots of this looked at from a Chinese perspective. I agree with what Rich has said. This is clearly a, a strategic effort on the part of China to expand its, its influence, uh, to extend its reach, to enhance its interests in various ways. It has this continental aspect and also the maritime dimension, but it can also be divided up other ways. There's a part of it that's clearly directed at other advanced industrial countries, particularly in Europe, and then a large portion of it that's directed to the global south, to the developing world, Southeast Asia, South Asia, Africa, Middle East, into parts of Latin America. And I think in those parts of the world, Belt and Road has is, is become sort of the principal platform for China to advance its interests. And they're, they're varied, and the situation varies in, in different countries. But in the past, certainly since the uh, so-called going out process that began at the end of the 20th century, the beginning of the 21st, China was principally interested in, in acquiring resources of various kinds, minerals, fuel, food, to bring back to fuel China's economic growth. And that's still important. But I think increasingly, Chinese planners also see the developing world as an important source of markets for Chinese production, especially if, as I think they've anticipated for a while, their access to the markets of the United States and other advanced industrial countries may be constricted over time. So Africa, for example, is now slated, projected to grow in population, I think, to double by 2050. We have 2 billion people, so potentially a very large market, a place where Chinese enterprises could establish productive facilities and take advantage of low-cost labor as Chinese labor costs increase. It's also, I think, a concern that Chinese SOEs and other entities that are involved in this process seem particularly interested not just in the usual physical infrastructure, bridges, roads, highways, pipelines, but also IT, so-called fiber silk road. And they've progressed quite a long way in Africa in particular in building IT networks. And as I think people are increasingly recognizing, this has substantial strategic implications could allow Chinese entities to have access to intelligence information, access to vast quantities of data, which can be used to fuel the development of mm -hmm. algorithms for artificial intelligence. The penetration also brings with it the prospect of greater political influence, which I think the Chinese are interested in. They are free to throw money around in a way that Western institutions and firms are generally constricted from doing by their laws. And that's having an effect, I think, of weakening democratic institutions where those may not yet have taken root and strengthening authoritarian regimes. They're looking for support in diplomatic confrontations with the West. Mao had an expression that uh, he introduced during the Civil War that he was going to encircle the cities from the countryside. And that was also a term that was used to describe some of China's revolutionary activities during the 1960s. And I gather that that term is now being used by some people in China to describe the long-term purpose of China's activities in the developing world, to encircle, if you like, the advanced industrial democracies, to divide them from one another, and to expand China's own influence and presence. So it's a big, big game. Whether it's going to play out in the ways that China's leaders might hope is an entirely different question. And as Rich mentions, there, there's been pushback against it in various parts of the world, growing dissatisfaction or unhappiness. Are some of these loans predatory, for example? Right. That's, that's one part of the, the question. I guess the, the last thing to say about it, though, is a lot of the commentary, even now, I think, in the United States and in the West, assesses what the Chinese are doing with reference to standards that are probably not applicable, sort of cost-benefit calculations. And this has led people to conclude that this is sort of foolish, and they're wasting money, and this pipeline will never pay off, and so on. Well, in fact, it's quite possible, I think it's likely, that from the perspective of China's decision makers, some of these investments are a form of, if they're a strategic investment, they're a form of insurance. So they're willing to pay a premium 
to build a pipeline that will bring natural gas across land because they fear that in a conflict the United States might interdict supplies that come by sea. So we have to try to understand what their motivations are rather than projecting our own standards onto what they're doing. Following on the topic of China's influence on other countries, do you believe that there are countries like Singapore, for example, who feel pressured to pick sides? Everybody's feeling pressured <laughs> to pick sides. I mean, you have interesting, if you look at the structure of international relations today, there's a re-emerging bipolarization. You've got two poles, basically, the United States and China. You have this strategic competition, which is cl being clarified now in everybody's minds around the world. If you're a Vietnam or a Philippines or a Malaysia, or wherever you are, particularly around the periphery, but even away from the periphery, you're going to see your interests uh, not lined up maybe as clearly as, as they were some years ago when there wasn't the pull, both the pull of China and, and also the effect of nascent threat from China. Nascent threat may mean if you can't deal with it in any other way, you're going to bandwagon. So, in the case of all these countries, they have to, a smaller country has to make a really tough set of calculations, economic, political, diplomatic, military, as to how it's going to play this game. And in an ever-changing balance of power, this is very fluid, in which Chinese capability increasingly puts at risk our forces in the Western Pacific, then you're going to, if you're the Philippines or wherever you are, you're going to have to think, wow, I need to engage both sides. I'm not sure who the winner's going to be. I sure wish America, we loved how it was. We could kind of do whatever we wanted, engage, whatever. We had a lot of freedom here. It's not that comfortable anymore. China's going to have some demands, but we can't ignore them. And so in every case, it's amazing how many places are now in play that wasn't the case just a few years ago. Some places are not in play, like Japan. Japan understands its interests closely with the United States as clearly as anybody. But, but it's amazing how many places are in play. And it's not that we're not putting some places in play that we wouldn't have imagined to just a few years ago. North Korea, for example. So North Korea is potentially in play, not because American power is increasing in the region, which gives North Korea increasing incentive to try to deal with us and or increasing incentive to side with China. If you look from North Korea's perspective, its principal threat historically and now is not South Korea. South Korea is not going to invade the North and it knows it. It's not Japan. Japan's the last country in the world to go on the mainland of Asia and invade somebody. They can do all, they've proven the North, do humiliate us kill our troops, you know, rattle their sword, blow up nuclear weapons. We do, all we do is seem to get mad, but we don't do anything. Their principal threat is China. So our reaching out to North Korea is based on the fact that North Korea's principal threat is from the North, not from the South or from us. Now, China is acutely aware of this. And so China has summer, you know, summoned Kim, Kim Jong-un to come to, to, to Beijing time after time. Xi Jinping's going to go to Pyongyang, apparently, shortly. So China's acutely aware that North, it can't afford to have North Korea in play. So my point is that really everywhere in the world is really potentially not unlike in the Cold War, although there were rigid alliances and so on, but the Soviet Union often thought parts of Western Europe were in play. Like that, we're seeing in a bipolar world through all over the place, nations in play. It's a global competition. We used to focus very much on the Asia-Pacific region and be concerned about the disposition of countries there, and that's still a concern. But as Rich suggests, this has now blossomed and expanded, and it is truly global. A couple of things on this issue of choosing sides. I think the United States, until very recently, was not pushing anyone to take sides. Our position, again, looking at the Asia-Pacific region, was go ahead and have your economic relationship with China. You can have that as well as having a close security relationship with us, Australia as an example. It was the Chinese, the CCP regime, that was saying, 
you can't expect in the long run to enjoy the great benefits that you gain from your economic relationship with us if you continue to side with the United States. And the Chinese were the ones who were suggesting this, and they still are, and they're doing it, I think, more openly. More recently, I think the United States, at least in particular cases, and especially in the technology domain, has been saying to partner countries, including some of our closest allies, you have to make some choices about whether you're going to allow Huawei to build portions of your critical infrastructure. And if you do, there may be negative implications for your relationship with us. That's a rather new development. I think the, the U.S., what the U.S. has offered many countries, particularly in the region, but not only there, has been a mix of security assurances and also economic opportunities. And we have to double down on both. I think we have to make certain that people believe that our security guarantees are credible uh, and that what Senator Gardner said earlier is true, that the United States isn't going to be pushed out of the region and is by virtue of geography and history and Indo-Pacific power and so on. That's a message that has to be reiterated because one of the things that Chinese interlocutors say to their counterparts in Asia is the Americans are not here forever. We are. You have to deal with us. You better be careful about getting on our bad side. So we need to reinforce the, the credibility of our security commitments. But we also have to make sure that we provide the greatest possible opportunity for others who are being drawn closer to China because of the gravitational pull of its massive economy to benefit from economic, continued economic interaction with us. And if we're threatening or imposing tariffs on our friends and allies, I think we're doing exactly the opposite. Uh, I think we would have been wiser to proceed with TPP, for example. That's now a, a dead horse that we can beat endlessly. <laughs> because if we don't, whatever the, the economic implications of those kinds of agreements may be, we are contributing to China's efforts to essentially to draw others closer and closer to it. That is an inevitable, and I don't think many of the countries in the world or in Asia in particular want to be in that sphere exclusively, but we have to make sure that they have options. You know, let me bring this back to the National Asia Research Program. As in the Cold War, and again, I think even more so today, we have to understand the interests, kind of the, the strategic position and interests of an amazing number of actors in between the U.S. and China, although if you look at a map, it doesn't look like they're in between, but in fact, it's, it's in this periphery. We have to understand that the interests, motivations, interdependencies, histories, and so on, of an incredible number of states that in the end could be extremely strategically important in this competition. So understanding many Southeast Asian nations, Europeans actually, all, all around the world, we have to understand these places better than ever. We need new generations of specialists, of area specialists. Area studies declined after the Cold War. The traditional disciplines reasserted themselves, and we need to reinvigorate area studies. We have to understand places again, that actually places are different, and peoples are different, and their histories are different, because if we're going to be wise in our dealings with, with countries that matter now in this big game that we're playing, we got to know them better. So hence the need to nurture new generations of area specialists. I agree with that. As a practicing political scientist, I can confirm <laughs> that this is, a, this is a major and ongoing issue. And the, the thought that everybody is not just a rational actor with one substitutable for another is a shocking insight for some people, but really shouldn't be. I guess the other thing I would say about this effort, I mean, in addition to the analytic and intellectual labor that Rich refers to, which is critically important, to conducting an effective strategy. I do think that uh, aside from material interests, security or welfare, the ideological component mm. is critical and that the countries that we are going to be closest to in the long run and who are going to feel confident in relying on us and with whom we can cooperate most closely are countries who share with us certain basic values and beliefs. We shouldn't be shy about saying that. Yeah, well, in fact, in international affairs, it's interesting. In the end, values, in, in spite of the fact that we, we have in our minds kind of separate out Wilsonian foreign policy versus realpolitik and so on, the reality of international affairs is values are always important. 
And once again, they're simply paramount. We would not be nearly as concerned. Are today the voices of human rights organizations, for example, would not be heard. Were China a democratic, rule of law-based society, yeah. magnificently successful, we, wouldn't, we couldn't mobilize very many Americans over that. But in fact, there are fundamental values that are simply critical to our lives that are at stake. And so understanding that and understanding at the same time authoritarians' paranoia about freedom, democratic values, rule of law, all the things that they don't have and don't stand for, their sensitivity to it means the competition is going to happen. They've been at war with us. It was a great comment I heard one time in the White House. It was, you know, if somebody's at war with you, you're at war with them. You may not realize it, but, you know, you're at war with them. And this is a set of actors overseas that have been quietly at war with us for a long time, trying to beat us and trying to supplant their values for ours, trying to protect their own, their, their vulnerable. Right. So in any case, I can't underscore that enough. Yes, this is another shocking insight that I should highlight for political scientists. Not all nations are the same. They're not all billiard balls that interact in similar right. ways or predictable ways right. under the same circumstances. And have different objective functions. Right. Their, their domestic orders, their political structures matter tremendously Histories. in the ways that they behave right. in, in international relations. All right, my last question. The thought of an alliance between China and Russia, I think, is terrifying to most. What should the United States do to make such an alliance a lower probability? Okay, well, this is, uh, I'll plug one more and be our book, why not? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bob Sutter and I, well, Bob led a multi-year project that looked at the Sino-Russian alignment we had 50 papers written, a whole bunch of great meetings. I mean, over 100 top specialists in the world focused on this. Understanding what drives those two together is fundamental. And we can talk about the complex interests and where their interests might overlap or not. They don't overlap necessarily in Central Asia. They don't overlap necessarily at all in the Russian Far East. But in the main, two overriding interests compel but in essence is an alliance. Not called an alliance, but in essence it is. And the first is, and we've talked about it, is their common, the common threat they feel from democracy in the US in particular. So undermining that threat, which is existential to them, drives them together. Secondly, they have complementary interests. In my view, this is the one that is least understood. Many people poo-poo Russia as having an economy 10% of our own or 10% of China's size. But what compels them to uh, strategically collaborate as much as anything else is that they're, they're complementary interests. Russia covets Europe. Mm -hmm. China covets Asia, the routes to Asia. It has global ambition as well, and that scares Russia. That long-term, the, the sheer power of China and long-term goals of China are, are not shared interest with Russia, but boy, for the interim period, some good long period, they have complementary interests. So they can divide our attention. They can divide our forces. We gave up during the immediate post-Cold War era our capacity to fight 2.1, at least two wars in different theaters, a war in each theater. We gave up that capacity. They divide our strategic attention. And so they can see the day when, the, when America might falter and, and Russia could achieve its goals in Europe, China, in Asia. One last part of this, and I want to compare it to the axis of the 1930s and 40s. Japan's economy, when it attacked the United States, was what percentage of America's economy? It's unimaginable with not that axis and Germany doing what it was doing in Europe, it's unimaginable Japan would have attacked us. But that axis divided our attention. Japan's economy was 10% of ours in 1941. So those who discount a weak Russia as really being a, an, a, an actor of importance, 
don't understand what it means when you can divide the will, the capacity, and so on, of the only possible adversary you've really got. Mm -hmm. No one else can stand up. There's no alternative to the United States. So I would argue that, that the number one threat to the United States, military threat, security threat, is the potential for our forces to be divided in those theaters when we're not prepared to do so. We are not prepared to fight major wars in Russia, in, uh, in Europe, and Asia at this time. On the ideological theme, in contrast to the early stages of the Cold War, where the Soviet Union and the People's Republic purported to be common, share a common ideological outlook, they were both communist powers, and wound up arguing about who should be the leader and who was the best interpreter of doctrine and so on. China and Russia presently don't have that problem. They don't purport to share an ideology in a positive sense, but they share a negative ideology, an anti-ideology. They're both fearful of liberal democracy. And that, I think, may enable this alignment to last longer than if they were arguing over questions of doctrine. Yeah, well then, and they have, re they have gone out of their way to acknowledge the disaster of the Sino-Soviet split. They are explicit mm -hmm. about it. We will not repeat that. They say that explicitly. Because frankly, looking back, arguably, that's what really undid, that's what enabled us to win, together with a bunch of some other things. But that was critical to our victory in the Cold War. And they have vowed not to repeat it. They also have, as Rich suggests, a number of complementary material interests. In addition to the strategic one, China needs resources. And that's one thing that Russia can provide. Russia needs capital. And that's something that China can provide. So I think it's a mistake to believe that this is sort of a passing fancy and that these countries are, uh, are uh, not truly aligned. I think they are, and they're, they're likely to become more so. In the long run, as Rich also suggests, and many people have pointed out, there are likely to be difficulties. Russia was, for a long time, the, the big brother, and it is no more. China clearly is, and that's not a comfortable position for the Russians to be in. China, as it pushes to the west along the continental axis of the Belt and Road, is moving directly into areas that the Russians have long thought of as their preferred sphere of influence. They do seem to be finding ways to cooperate, even with that, but there are likely to be tensions in the long run, and that's something we should be alert to. I don't think there's any prospect in the near term of our doing anything that would really successfully separate these two countries, because I don't think there's much that we can or should offer either of them that would encourage them to turn their backs on each other. And in particular, with respect to Russia, we're not going to say you can have Ukraine or you can have the Baltic republics. We, we're, we can't do that. We won't do that. We shouldn't do that. Moreover, I think both the Russian and Chinese regimes, for their own reason, need a degree of tension with the West and with the United States to mobilize their populations. And this is certainly true of Putin in Russia, who sort of built his, home, his whole identity around this. So for the time being, pending some change in the character of the Russian regime, which seems more likely than a change in the character of the Chinese regime, I don't think we should be toying with the idea of doing a sort of reverse of what Kissinger and Nixon did with China in the late 60s and early 70s. I think that's an illusion. We have to be in opposition substantially to both, which as Rich says, means we have to take seriously the possibility of a variety of scenarios that could be very stressful for us, including military scenarios. So I actually, Aaron and I are not exactly twins separated at birth. <laughs> And I'm not as well shaven as he is, but, but in addition to that, I, I think there's something we can do. I think there's some things we can do and that we have to do. Since this is the number one threat, that alliance operating, those two operating in dis, different spheres and, and dispersing our, our cell, uh, the United States strategically. Number one, we have to, it's gonna be hard to deter China. It's bigger, stronger, harder to change those, that, that, a party state, hardy, harder to deal with it. But Russia is weaker. Russia's interests are at best ambivalent with regard to China. And we can deter Russia. If I were president, I wouldn't have had those, I don't know, hour-long conversations that I know President Obama had with Putin. I'd probably have a 90-second, 60-second to 90-second one, which is, you're first to go. You're not going to do anything in Europe 
I don't care what China's doing in Asia, you're not doing anything in Europe because we're taking you out. So I would deter Russia. I would also hold out carrots down the road. If you pulled your troops back from Eastern Europe, if you did a few things, there are things we will do with you economically. There is a relationship with Japan you could have. You could have a pipeline with Japan. We might be able to do some things, but don't you count on that alliance with China because we're taking you out first. And so I would focus the clearest deterrence on Russia and to have it recalculate exactly what its strategic interests are. Well, since Rich has opened up some daylight between us, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to pry away at it just a little bit so we can end on a note of dispute and disagreement. I, I actually don't think we, we disagree substantially. I, I just don't believe that there is much prospect for making progress along these lines with the current Russian leadership because I think they're so heavily invested in their current position of opposition to the West and to the United States. Moreover, I do think we have to differentiate between the challenge that the two pose, and in particular, let's say, in the military domain. In the long run, the challenge from China, I think, is much greater. I think the prospects for Russia actually successfully conducting large-scale military operations that would extend a long distance from its borders are limited and likely to remain so, which isn't to say that they couldn't do some very problematic things immediately around their periphery, including against the, the Baltic states. But, of course, the, the administration, the current administration, has kind of put these two together in talking about a new era of great power competition, and I understand that, and I, I think there's a reason for doing that. But it is important, I think, to distinguish the nature of the challenge that are, that's posed by the two. Russia is a declining and deteriorating power. I think its strategy is aimed much more at destabilization and weakening the West, keeping the West divided and off balance. China benefits from that, even though that's not, uh, they're using very different tactics. Uh, but I think Russia is playing a, a relatively weak hand, whereas China conceivably is playing a much stronger one. You know, it's interesting that when the big new strategies came out, they talked about the two separately. But starting this winter, first in the intelligence community and then in the Department of Defense and, and State, we've seen that it's the alignment itself that is also a problem. It's not mm -hmm. just the two separately. It is the alignment. And that's been a, a sea change of assessment within the United States government. Yeah, by the way, just on that, there are still things, even though the Russians had a significant fall off in their investment in their military capabilities and a dramatic deterioration in the quality of their armed forces after the end of the Cold War, they've reversed that to some extent, certainly since 2008. And there are still some areas where they have a great deal of experience and certainly where over the last 25 years, China has benefited tremendously from transfer of technology, knowledge, expertise. The Soviets were the world's leading authorities on how to try to track American submarines. They were the ones who first explored the possibility of anti-ship ballistic missiles. They have developed some remarkable weapons, super cavitating torpedoes and so on that the, the Chinese have been interested in. So they still have some areas of expertise that, from which the Chinese benefit just in the military domain. What, what, one last shot. If you go back to, say, 1939-40, before Japan swept out of China and in 1941, if you went back there, it was still very possible, had the United States had a strategic foreign and defense policy, instead of being driven by the neutrality acts and isolationism, which was absolute reverse strategic, I mean, unbelievable to study that period, how we encouraged aggression by promising not to be involved when we were the principal actor, potentially in international affairs. But in any case, had we not been in that state of mind, we could have deterred Japan and Asia. Had we just told Japan, you know, we're not going to deal with Nazi Germany right now, but we're going to, you know, we're focused on you. Don't do anything anymore. Japan would not have invaded Southeast Asia. It would have not bombed Pearl Harbor. So there were ways to deter then, which I think are analogous to our situation today. All right. Do we have time for... This podcast was produced by Owen Wynn and Simone McGinnis. Asia Insight theme music is by Laura Schwartz of Bellwether Bayou. Asia Insight podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asia Insight.